At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. The social politics that built New York during the Gilded Age have become legendary. History is full of dramatic stories of who was in and who was out, and it didn't always matter how much money you had. Fortunes could be made and lost in a quickening heartbeat or with a swish of satin at a grand ball. Historical accounts of the deals and dramas can be fascinating, of course, but it's important to remember that they were real people and real emotions riding high behind them. In today's show, we have a truly unique opportunity to look into some fictional lives based on real people in a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Carol Wallace and the author of the just-published new novel of the Gilded Age, Our Kind of People. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we sit down for a nice cup of tea and take a look at the glitter and the gold and all that lay underneath this world in the Gilded Age of New York, Paris's Grande Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian England. Today's show brings us directly into the very heart of the Gilded Age. In addition to the society balls and financial battles, the Gilded Age, at the end of the day, was about people. And people who, as my guest today shows us, were, well, our kind of people. I am deeply honored and completely excited to welcome Carol Wallace to The Gilded Gentleman. Carol will be known to many listeners not only from her more than 20 books, including the extraordinary novel Leaving Van Gogh, but her documentary television appearances as well. Carol is the co-author with Gail McCall of the New York Times bestseller To Marry an English Lord, which served as an inspiration for Julian Fellow's beloved series, Downton Abbey. Carol is truly the go-to source for all things Gilded Age, and now she takes us intimately into this world of politics, emotional, social, and economic, with her brand new novel, Carol, I am so honored to have you join me. You know, I'm your number one fan. (laughs) Carl, it is nothing but thrilling to be here. 
This episode is the first in a series of periodic episodes called The Gilded Page, in which I am sharing some literary works written during the Gilded Age or about the Gilded Age. So I am so excited to have you here for this episode. And I must, for all my listeners, just say that literary blood runs deep in Carol's veins. One of the great prolific best-selling Gilded Age writers was Lou Wallace, who wrote a number of novels as well as nonfiction, and whose blockbuster was the original novel of Ben-Hur. And no, my friends, it did not start in 1959 with Charlton Heston. The original book was published in 1880 and became a bestseller, even surpassing Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin in popularity. Carol is Lou Wallace's great granddaughter. So, Carol, you are the perfect guest for the debut episode of The Gilded Page. What would your great-grandfather think of your work and of us sitting here together today? I think he would probably (laughs) think my work was lightweight. (laughs) But he also had a really good eye for publicity himself, so I think he would certainly have thought this was exactly the way to be proceeding when launching a book. Absolutely. If they only had Instagram accounts and podcasts back in the Gilded Age, can you imagine what would have happened? So, Carol, as we we start off here, I am going to offer you a trademark of the Gilded Gentleman, which is a cup of tea. I brewed some Earl Grey here. So uh, would you like a little milk in yours? It's up to you. I don't know oh, how you take your tea. thank you. It looks just <laughs> lovely. Now I want to locate listeners in the general world of the novel. Our kind of people traces just about two years, 1874 to about 1876, in the life of the Wilcox family. We have wife Helen and husband Joshua and their two daughters who are about to make their debut into society. And we also meet the family servants and extended family members, including Helen's mother, the grand matriarch Selina Maitland. The plot focuses on a number of challenges that the family encounters as they navigate both socially and professionally. Will they stay in or out of society? How much of their family background matters? And of course, how their daughters will be brought out into society and enter society and continue the cycle or not. All of this is set, of course, against a glamorous, elegant, but incredibly turbulent time in New York, and certainly really the entire country as it was busting out of old constraints and forging something incredibly exciting and incredibly new. So, Carol, you've set the book. The book opens in 1874, really, which was the beginning, in a lot of ways, of of the Gilded Age. Can you talk about how you chose that particular moment in New York history? I think I chose 1874 and thereabouts precisely for the reasons that you just mentioned. It was the very beginning of the mega box that started to roll into various families' coffers. And New York wasn't quite certain, social New York wasn't quite certain how to handle that. And I'm always interested in a situation where insiders and outsiders are trying to get the measure of each other and decide whether or not the outsiders will be allowed to play in the sandbox, as it were. And this was just one of those moments when that particular issue is especially fraught. There were many, many people coming to New York for work opportunities Mm -hmm. and the like. There were many new ways to make money. But there were also families living in the city who had been there for generations 
and they didn't like the newcomers. That's always how it works. And it's always a terrific conceit for a novelist to work out. I thought that the moment that you chose was particularly fascinating, one, because the financial world was just coming off the great panic of, of 1873, but also the construction of the elevated railroad, which is so crucial in the plot of, of the novel. Was that another contributing factor in that particular moment? Oh, absolutely. Actually, I was casting around for some way for the Wilcox family, well, for Joshua, the father, to make a lot of money. And it became clear to me in my research that the foundation of an elevator railway would serve my purposes very well. And it was just a matter of time and ferreting around the internet to find the one I needed. But I did a fair amount of research and ended up writing quite a bit about the railroad that uh, subsequently my editor just cut it all out. <laughs> because in fact, nobody really needed to know how wide the gauge was and how much the train tracks, how high they were, et cetera, et cetera. We'll do a separate podcast just on that, because I think it's fascinating. But that was a fascinating moment that really transformed the city after all. Now, let's take a look at Helen and Joshua Wilcox, which are really it's our main adult couple here. Now, both of them come from very different backgrounds here. Can you talk about this dichotomy and what it meant for them socially? When you're writing a novel, the first thing you have to figure out is where your conflict is going to be. So I have Helen, who is the daughter of a well-to-do old New York family. Then there's Joshua, who manages to make some money in New York at first with a livery stable. So what's interesting in both these characters, Helen and Joshua, is they are used to making money or keeping money in very, very different ways. That's exactly right. So Helen comes from a family whose money was earned decades, if not a century earlier, and has had time to more or less mellow. It's old money. They have old things. They have refined manners, all of them. And they belong to a very circumspect, limited social circle. So that's Helen. Then Joshua, whom she meets when he is leasing a horse to her father, Joshua is a country boy who ultimately starts a big business and makes a lot of money, but the process of the two of them finding each other in romantic terms and then becoming acceptable as a couple to greater New York society, that's where the story really exists. It and that's where the problem is, right? Because exactly. the society is looking at them in Helen's world. They have that old money, and they just don't like to spend it or touch it or do anything with it. Whereas Joshua's world, which we will see when we get to talk about some other characters, they're willing to play around with it and, you know, roll the dice, literally, right? Literally, yeah. So right off the bat, and I was so struck right in the very beginning of the novel, you introduced this idea of acceptance into society. So everything was not... A given the opening of the novel is we have Helen wanting to get back to this luncheon so that her daughter can then be accepted into the dancing class. But this was not just about a class to go and learn how to waltz. What was dancing class about and what did it really mean? Carl, did you go to dancing school? My mother taught me to waltz. Your mother taught you to waltz. <laughs> okay. I went to dancing school. And what it was about was girls and boys getting accustomed to each other, learning 
I learned to foxtrot and to waltz. And it's really all about making those early connections with the people you are expected to socialize with and then later to marry. Now, in the late 60s, things didn't work out that way. (laughs) But in the 1870s, that's really what the project was. And the whole point about these dancing classes was the young people who were supposed to marry each other meet, socialize. There is a very controlled round of social experiences they have, and then ultimately they will... I mean, it's a little bit like breeding a prize chicken. There are only so many options that are acceptable. Well, it seems also from a very young age, too, people are scoping each other out and who's going to be appropriate and who's not going to be appropriate. And one of the things about Gilded Age society strikes me is that it's this endless series of tests and trials and things that you have to go through. And this whole dancing class was part of that, right? Oh, it absolutely was. Now, mind you, if you think about society both in those days and now, I think, there are various hurdles and levels of acceptance. I mean, how do you think you get to go to the Met Ball? It's exactly the same process. There's the sorting and the choosing. And the only real question is who gets to do that. That's where the power is. And it seems to me, also in in your book, there are two stunning scenes that you set at the opera. And now the Metropolitan Opera hadn't even been built at this point. So we're talking about the Academy of Music, the old venerable opera house on 14th Street, which, of course, Edith Wharton uses at the opening of Age of Innocence. So we all love it for that. But going to the opera was another test and trial, right? This was not about just going to have a beautiful evening listening to music. What was what were all the politics of that about? A lot of it was show, right? A lot of it was display. And if you think about any opera house, really, and if you get online and look at images of the Academy of Music, you will see that the boxes are there as much as anything in those days to display the occupants. It was expensive to to rent a box. It was also somehow difficult socially to get the correct box. I do believe that they were actually handed down through families. And clubs had boxes so that it was perfectly possible for a husband to deposit his wife in the family box, and then he would leave her there and beetle around the back and go and sit with his buddies, and they would ogle the singers from above in their low-cut costumes. There was also a big social piece to the promenades between the acts, so a see-and-be-seen moment, a greet-and-be-greeted moment, or greet-and-be-ignored moment. So the opera was almost a battlefield in some respects in terms of who was allowed to know whom or who would recognize whom. Well, you have this masterful example of that towards the end of the novel. There is your second big opera scene, where I like to call it the great art of the snub. And that's what's going on is, without giving away the plot, can you talk a little bit about what the art of the snub was? One of the issues was, as I said, knowing and being known. And in this instance, there is a character who likes to believe that she controls New York society. And there is another character who has different priorities. And 
they have been more or less clashing throughout the book. And at this moment, the tables are turned. I'll just leave it there. Quite deliciously so, are they not? I, I was cheering when all of that. <laughs> no, I was when I was reading. Now, I just got the distinct feeling that I'd met some of these characters before, or they felt very familiar to me in some ways and of the way they, they acted. So can you talk a little bit about some of the characters that may have had historical antecedents that, that were based on bits and pieces of some real people? And I'm curious also to know the ones that you just made up. Well, I think you're probably primarily talking about Annabelle Van Ormskirk, yeah. who is based... <laughs> quite plainly, quite overtly on Caroline Astor, who was the the boss lady of New York society in those days. And Mrs. Astor became the most important woman largely, yes, because she was wealthy, yes, because the family money was old, but also because she was just plain pushy. Sometimes it just takes a ferocious amount of energy to accomplish a social goal. And she had that quite plainly, even at more than 100 years distance. So I just really changed her name a little bit. And one of the things I love about Caroline Astor is that she was apparently a grand figure of a woman. And you can just imagine her sailing around the opera hallways with, let's say, a bosom like the prow of a ship (laughs) and priceless lace and velvet. And these women all had tremendous posture because of their corsets, high dressed hair. And that was Caroline Astor. She was not kind. She was not welcoming to new people. But she ran the show. I just did a show on Caroline Astor, so I am fascinated by this woman. I think she's so interesting. Another character I'd like to talk a little bit about is Felix Castle. Now, who were you thinking of? I have an idea, but I want to make sure I'm right. Well, you know, Felix, to me, is kind of a composite. So, yeah. so give. who are you thinking about? Oh, Leonard Jerome. Yes. But nicer than Leonard Jerome. Nicer than <laughs> Leonard Jerome, a, a generation younger than Leonard Jerome. And that's for me, is sort of important. And also, without giving too much away, Felix has to be charming, persuasive, glamorous, Leonard Jerome, I don't think of him in those terms. Would you share a little bit about, for our listeners, who Leonard Jerome was? Leonard Jerome was one of the early entrepreneurs in New York City who made a lot of money quite quickly. And he's probably most famous as the father of the raving beauty, Jenny Jerome, who in 1874 married Lord Randolph Churchill. So that's the very beginning of the moment when American heiresses start to marry English aristocrats in what became quite a little social moment. Who's your favorite character in the book? I love asking authors that. Carl. (laughs) Carl. (laughs) How could I choose a favorite? Honestly, you know. Top uh, three. Top three. Okay, top three. Uh, Obviously, Helen. Um, in a way, I loved Selena to write, even though she's quite odious. No, she's the matriarch. We should be clear. She's, she's the, the matriarch. Yes. Selena is Helen's mother, and she is very conservative, quite cruel at times. She has very high standards for her daughter's behavior. And she eventually... No, I don't think I'll tell you. But <laughs> um, 
so Selena is definitely one of my favorites because her outlook was so clear cut. And then Felix, of course. Felix is so glamorous. So I just have a huge uh, soft spot for him. Was there any character that was harder to write, that was less likable, that, that was just a challenge to put together? Anybody? Actually, less likable isn't an issue. It's boring that's an issue. And I don't, I like to think there aren't that there many. There are no boring <laughs> characters. I will just say that right now. There is nobody that's boring. I personally found Thaddeus Britton just a charming, lovely character. He is one of the suitors, um, and we'll leave it at that. But he, that was a lovely, lovely portrait about that. Oh, thank so, you. Carol, your tea is getting a little, um, little low there. So we're going to take a little break, and I'll refill our teacups, and we'll be back in just a minute. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, everyone. And we're back. And we have freshly topped up cups of tea, Carol. And we're going to continue our conversation. We were talking a little bit before the break about some of the characters in the novel. And to me, very much, it seems like the city of New York in a way, is very much a character in the book. Can you talk a little bit about what the character traits, if we're going to call them that, of New York would have been at this time period? That is a great way to look at it. Yes, it was so fascinating to do a lot of that New York research. By setting the novel in the 1870s, there is lots and lots of photographic material. So I could really see things that I might not have been able to imagine, for example, the elevated railway that becomes such an important part of the story. So that was a really big thing. The character traits of New York City at that moment, I think if you imagined someone who had come to your house, who's full of enthusiasm, really a little bit outsized, likes you sort of like a puppy maybe, or a very large, tall human who doesn't quite fit in your sofa and yet is full of enthusiasm, full of ambition, full of energy. And when that person leaves, you're exhausted. And yet you think, gosh, that was pretty great. So New York has some of that air of just coming into its own. And I think that's the most important thing about it. The city is becoming the city we all live in now or the city that people enjoy visiting, the bustle, the energy, the sense that anything is possible. 
One of my very favorite scenes in the book is one that you set at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and it's the scene of a beginning of, of a romance. But what was fascinating to me is that wasn't the location of the Metropolitan Museum of Art as we know it today. So where was the Met in the 1870s? I wanted a place for those two characters to run into each other. I will not say anything about who they are, but... There weren't that many places where a young woman of a good family could go. She was out with a maid, but still for her to be out and about. Uh, so I thought of the Met, and I was aware that it had been founded very early by a group of gentlemen who felt that New York ought to have a cultural institution like a museum. So they purchased a house on, if I remember correctly, 14th Street. And some of them donated paintings, and they called it, in an incredibly ambitious way, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, even though it was just a house with some paintings in it. And it was actually, it worked as the setting for what that scene does. But yes, it is surprising when you consider where it is now. Another piece of the novel that I love so much is your attention to process of making a dress, of writing invitations. On and on it goes. There are all these social rituals that you describe that really show us how that all happened. How did you research all of that? And particularly the dressmaking scenes I, are stunning to me. I like clothes a lot. There is a lot of really good scholarship, especially at the Metropolitan Museum, about and around 19th century fashion. So that's really the big source for those moments. Now, it's been said in some of the advanced praise that your novel has a very Jane Austen quality to it. And what I what that refers to is that you do refer to specific details, but there is there's a lot of description you don't give us and nor does Jane Austen yet you, as did Jane, bring us into these situations. We can see them. We can feel them. We are very much there. Did Austin influence you in the writing of this? I would never, <laughs> ever have expected to be compared to the magnificent Jane. But you were. <laughs> well, thank you. I think what's really happening there, very much intentionally on my part, probably not so much intentionally on hers, is that as you are writing you need to balance very carefully your pacing, which is to say how uh, matters are moving along plot-wise, and your details. And nobody really wants to read an entire list of, let's say, what uh, Selena has on at a given moment. So you have to just give them a couple of details and let the reader fill that out. And maybe that's what you're reacting to, because I think Jane Austen does do that. Now, another writer that you and I both dearly, dearly love is, of course, Edith Wharton. Every now and again, there felt perhaps there were some influences of Wharton. Yes? No? Oh, so totally. I mean, how, how could <laughs> I knew not I'd get be? that one. Yeah. How could that not be the case? Uh, yes, The Age of Innocence. I tried. I wasn't intentionally writing an homage to The Age of Innocence, but certainly that book is set in the 1870s. And there were bound to be some overlaps. Mrs. Horton was extremely interested in the way the cultural expectations of her New York City, which was the old New York, did impact the emotional lives of her characters. 
To the extent that I can be compared to Mrs. Fortin, it might be in that way. But I want to ask you about your huge bestseller, really, that helped inspire the story of Downton Abbey. And to me, to marry an English lord really is a Bible of the Gilded Age in so many ways. There's so much material in there, so much of what you tell. It's really a must-read. Did everyone out there hear me say that? Okay. Did its success, when it did that surprise you? Because you had written that years earlier. I think it was in the late 80s, early 90s, yes? To Marry an English Lord was first published in 1989. So, yes, its resurgence was a huge surprise. And we did hear... When Julian Fellows made a comment in the press about how he had been reading To Marry an English Lord and that it's in some ways prompted Downton Abbey, I was astounded and gratified. I had no idea where that would go. Well, no one did. No one had any idea where Downton was going to end up. And it has certainly benefited me enormously. The book itself, To Marry an English Lord, was repackaged with a new cover and actually made it onto the New York Times bestseller list, which was terrific. And I later went to England to be uh, not the tour guide, but kind of the person who chats about stuff on the bus and did a tour of English country houses, which was super fun. I know. I wish I'd come. <laughs> I know, right? It was so <laughs> great. Tantalizing. Yeah. So that was just a piece of tremendous good luck. Now, Carol, with with all of that and the experience that came with it, so the lecturing and the TV appearances and all the things that you've done, is there one question or one subject that you find people ask you over and over and over again? Is there one sort of area that people seem most fascinated with in the Gilded Age? Well, it's the money, isn't it? Every time. <laughs> Nothing's changed. No, exactly. And in some ways, I've always thought that part of the reason for the second resurgence of To Marry an English Lord is that we are in a financial moment that fairly closely resembles the boom of the late 19th century. What is it about the Gilded Age that attracts you the most? I think, oddly enough, what attracts me the most is the sense of interior spaces, which may sound really weird, but I grew up in a house that was built in 1864, and it was next door to a library that was built in 1860, and it was across the street from a church that was built in 1834. And somehow that sense of space around you is very real to me, particularly when I'm writing all these imaginary scenes. Is there a part of the Gilded Age that you like the least? Well, I wouldn't want to wear a corset, I'll tell you that much. And I certainly would not have wanted my mother to pick my husband for me. And yes, that social control is a terrible idea. Yeah, that would be bad. Yeah. Yeah. So as I neared the end of Our Kind of People, I was really struck by this incredible optimism that you present of, of this city that is, and, and really a society that is breaking free, and they're really evolving into something new. And I thought a little bit about New York today, because New York has really always been a city that's evolving. And, and it struck me that the Gilded Age may have been a particularly dramatic example of a process that continues on as, as we all continue to reinvent yourself. Was 
Was I dreaming or did it was very visceral feeling I had? I think you're absolutely right, Carl. And I think part of what you're responding to here is the fact that in the late 19th century, many of the physical features that we still rely on that surround us were, in fact, erected. I take the subway every day. I'm sure you do, too. And all of that transportation, the ferries back and forth, banking, so many of the industries that keep New York wealthy were in formation at that point. So it's, I would say, it is the very beginning of modern New York City that we're witnessing. And the excitement of it, too, because we had this transportation, we could move around, we were going to get electricity, which changed everything. One of the, and this is not giving away a plot, but I will tell a plot detail, but one of the my favorite moments is when Helen actually takes the elevated train herself. This is a woman that has spent her life in carriages. This is a woman who has had a very different sense of the physical city. And as you said earlier on, limited to a very certain area, which was really pretty small. All of a sudden, you feel her sense of wonder at being able to go from, what is it, the 50s down to downtown to Bowling Green. And it, and it is a sense of wonder. And that's something that we, of course, taking the subway today, don't even think about. But it must have been extraordinary. And, and you created, that was such a magic moment. Carl, you have more than made my day. That is so great to hear because I really wanted exactly that reaction from that scene. And I also wanted Helen to have the experience, and it was important for her to be alone while she did so. I wanted her to have the experience of finally understanding what it was that Joshua had created. So it, that scene does double duty, and I'm glad it, I'm glad it worked. Well, you know, my favorite character actually was Helen. When I started off, I thought it was going to be one of the girls, but I have to say it was Helen in the end, because here's a woman that didn't think she would change, but does. Oh, thank you. That's good to hear, because she was stuck in a rut that someone else had made for her, or she was living in a character that someone else had drawn for her, and she finally breaks away. Now, Carol, I want to um, ask a little bit about the title, because it struck me that the title might be slightly ironic. When you think about the Gilded Age, we think of the social stratification, and well, they're just not our sort. But then I had this moment where I thought, I think there's a little bit of irony here. Did you intend that? Irony? Carl? Never. My great-grandmother was kind of a grand dame in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. That says everything about her. So it was that mindset that I was trying to force open a little bit. And what struck me about it was the feelings, the emotions, the, the fear, the love, all of those things that happen to the characters that you portray are people like us today. Those are the same emotions that we go through. And and which is what I think is the magic of your writing and why it was so relatable to a modern audience. So I have to ask, if you could sit down with anyone from the Gilded Age and have a cup of tea with them, just the way we're we're sitting here doing it, who would it be? And what would you ask them, assuming that they're going to tell it to you straight? I would certainly choose to sit down with Henry James. I probably wouldn't have to ask anything. I think he would just talk, and that would be fine with me. 
I, I think he would too. <laughs> <laughs> and probably anything he said would be interesting. Henry James. Yes. Carol, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today for this talk, really about what lay beneath the glitter and the gold, and to talk about some real people whose lives and dreams weren't really all that different uh, from our own. Thank you so much for joining me, and I would love to have you back here on The Gilded Gentleman for more Gilded Age discussions. Can I convince you with some more tea one day? Absolutely, Carl. You know, we have only just scratched the surface here. Oh, my goodness. We certainly (laughs) have, but it has been such a pleasure. And to my listeners, I encourage you to get a copy of Our Kind of People and to pour a nice cup of tea, as we have done here today, and lose yourself in this world. I really have to say that I became so involved with these characters that I did really have a little bit of separation anxiety when I finished reading. And as much reading and work as I've certainly done on the Gilded Age period, I came away from the book with a new and a richer view. And that's, Carol, thanks to you and your wonderful writing and your insight. So I thank you really deeply for that. This has been so much fun, Carl. Thank you so much for having me on. I wish we had a whole nother hour. It was We could go on forever. <laughs> well, well, we'll do it again. Okay. Our Kind of People is available as a trade paperback original and also as an audiobook and as an ebook. So you can find a copy wherever books are sold. And to my listeners, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. If you've enjoyed the show, well, please leave a review. You know, your calling card. And make sure to subscribe if you haven't so you won't miss a single episode. I invite you to join the show as a patron on Patreon. Please visit patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support really helps me do the research and write and produce the show. And patrons, of course, have access to regular postings of patron-only special bonus content, including audio essays, extended interviews, and even the Gilded Gentleman True Crime Club. I'll see you soon. And what's life without a little glint of gold? Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.